Everybody's bracket busted. Everybody uh, on the same page here. I'm in a, uh, after last night, I checked out my, my status this morning. I'm in an extended group with, uh, with some of my extended family. There's 16 people in the group. I'm number 15 out of 16. The only person who is behind me in my extended family is uh, my uh, niece who is one year old. Um, I'm not even sure how she chose, but she just only did slightly worse than I have. So welcome Summit Church at all of our campuses this morning. Got a, a couple of things I want to mention to you as we get uh, going this morning, um, just before we get started. Uh, first of all, Monday, tomorrow, marks uh, the beginning of 21 days of prayer for us as a church leading up into Easter. We know that Easter is a time where a lot of people especially at this church, um, we've had uh, a lot of people come to faith in Christ. And so we want to just use this as an opportunity to really pray. And we are kicking that off with um, on Monday, having a day of prayer and fasting as a church. And I wanna encourage you to do that together. We're not going to come together as one body to do that, but just all throughout the triangle. Um, I would encourage you, if you have people in your neighborhood or your workplace that are a part of the Summit Church, get together over the lunch hour and let's just pray and then let that kick off 21 days of prayer. We're not gonna fast all 21 days unless you want to, but um, uh, 21 days of prayer. Uh, you can find all the prayer prompts and uh, fasting guide and all that is going to be at our website, summitchurch.com, which leads me to the second thing. And that is on your way out today. If you didn't get them on your way in, we have a lot of these inviter cards um, where you can invite somebody to Easter services. I tell you this every year, but it bears repeating. Um, and that is that, uh, that every study that I know of that's done shows that people who know a Christian say that they are willing, it's like 70% of them willing to go to church with that Christian on Easter Sunday. And so this is one of those free times that you get. You get two a year, uh, Christmas Eve and Easter. Make sure that you don't come alone. Use this as a tool to invite your one, invite somebody else's one, invite random ones that you meet at restaurants and coffee shops and in your workplace all over the triangle. So take these, take a reasonable amount, okay? It's not like a competition who can get the most. Um, we want to give them to you freely, but take as many as you'll use and, and, uh, and not a lot more. Um, last thing I want to mention, to you is I, I typically don't um, take time in the services to uh, do things like this because there's a lot of things that are happening in the, uh, the, the God's people, you know, in the, in the community. And um, we don't usually talk about them a lot during the uh, message. We just, you know, try to use other channels to let you know that. But I want to encourage you. Um, there is a movie that came out this weekend called Unplanned. Um, it is the story of uh, a girl named Abby Johnson, who was a former director of Planned Parenthood, um, basically tells a story of how she came to a realization of what was really, you know, going on. And, and, and basically it, what it shows you is that a, a abortion, things like abortion thrive in our culture by desensitizing us to the inhumanity of it all. And this is just a, it's an incredible story. It came out in, um, in theaters this weekend. I want to encourage you to, to go and see it or to, um, to uh, you know, figure out some way. I, my family and I saw it at least my older um, girls in my family uh, and I saw it uh, because uh, it is, um, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's, it tells the truth about it. So um, anyway, I just want to encourage you to do that. And like I said, I don't always take time to do that, but I thought that this one was worth doing that. So I wanted to mention that to you. Okay. Um, if you got your Bibles this weekend, Romans chapter five, Romans chapter five, um, as you're opening there, I love seeing our families commissioned here. We did that at every campus this weekend. Family ministry is one of those ministries that we really put a lot of energy and resources into because we know that partnering with you to raise a generation of disciple-making disciples is unquestionable. 
unquestionably the most strategic thing that we can do to advance the kingdom of God. Uh, speaking of that, as you are finding Romans 5, one of the things that I have personally learned as a parent of teenagers, my teenage girl turned 16 years old today, um, is that middle and high school students um, have a special, well, shall we say, jargon or language that they use over text messages in particular. And if you as a parent want to know what is going on in their lives, you have to at least know the basics of that jargon. Uh, that does not mean you should use those things, by the way. Uh, my daughters have let me know that. They get offended when I use some of these terms. They're like, dad, dad, just don't even try. So here is for you parents, Uncle JD's crash course list for you of essential insider teen text terminology. We'll start really, really basic, some that you know. Uh, this, there's a little controversy about how to pronounce this one. Um, I, I think it's GIF because it's graphic interface format and that would make sense. But that's when you use a picture to kind of depict some emotion uh, for your parents. Like I told my wife this week that I was taking her out on date night and she sends me back this right here. Uh, so that's a, that's a GIF. Um, <laughs> there's right here. Uh, what's this one? That's laugh out loud. Uh, by the way, uh, you've heard the story of, true story of the mom who thought that that meant lots of love. And so since her college age daughter a text says, hey, your grandmother passed away this morning, LOL, uh, which is like, nope, not lots of love. It's laugh out loud. So be careful with that one. Uh, of course, talk to you later. And then I don't even know. Um, here, Bay, you know, this one, B-A-E, uh, before anyone else. Uh, it's like my special someone. I've never heard this referred to like as God, but you know, it's for whatever you, you got it there. Uh, before anyone else, dying. That means on a scale of one to 10, you're a 10, you're a dime, she's a dime. I've never heard it used in reference to a guy, but I guess you could use it that too, but he's a dime. That sounds weird. But um, then there's uh, taupe, which is a combination of totally and dope. Dope means unbelievably awesome. Uh, like this sermon was taupe, yo. Uh, that would be like a way to use that. Uh, my daughters have told me that none of our friends actually use that one. And I just told them that's, that's because your friends aren't taupe like me and my friends. So... Um, <laughs> Shaking my head in case you missed it. In my humble opinion, uh, my improvement on that one is in my humble but accurate opinion. That's how I text that with my, this is one of my, this is one of my favorite ones to use at work, um, uh, P-E-B-K-A-C. The problem exists between the keyboard and the chair. That's where the real problem is in this situation between the keyboard and that chair. That's where things are breaking down. Oh, and then my, one of my personal favorites, my, my daughter send this to me all the time. JD is the best father a child could ask for, period, full stop. So you're going to want to make sure that you know that one and use that at random times. All right, so there it is, ladies and gentlemen. There is your insider teen text terminology. The reason I share that with you is because what Paul has been doing now for four chapters in the book of Romans is teaching you gospel insider terminology. And then in chapter five, he's going to take a turn and he's going to start showing you what a difference these terms ought to make in how you see life, particularly how you see suffering. For four chapters, he's giving you the essentials of justification by faith. If we were giving out certificates, I would give out certificates this morning. I asked our production team if we could do this and they said no, um, but I wanted to give you a gospel 101 certificate because you have now mastered, if you've been here every week, all the essential gospel terminology. So what Paul does is says, now that you know that, I'm gonna show you how these things should transform the way that you interpret life, particularly painful chapters of your life in affliction. How well you actually understand the gospel, you see. How well you understand the gospel is not, is not revealed by, by, by what you can do on a quiz or a test. How well you actually understand and believe the gospel, how deeply you believe it, is revealed by the attitude and the perspective that you carry through suffering. 
Martin Luther said, Martin Luther was the reformer who launched the Protestant Reformation through his study of the book of Romans. Martin Luther said that justification by faith, which we've looked at for four chapters now, justification by faith is the doctrine on which the church rises or falls. In the same way, I would tell you, justification by faith is the doctrine on which your spiritual life rises or falls. Everything in your Christian life is gonna grow out of your understanding of that concept. Every significant advancement in your spiritual life goes back to you growing in your understanding of the implications of what God has actually done for you in the gospel. It's like we often say around here, the gospel is not, is not just the way you begin the Christian life. The gospel is also the way that you grow in the Christian life. The gospel is like a well. You don't get the best water from a well by widening the circumference of the well. You get the best water from the well by deepening the well. In the same way, you don't get the best spiritual fruit by widening the circumference of your knowledge about the Bible. You, go, you, you get the best stuff by deepening your, your understanding, your familiarity with the things that the gospel teaches you. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is going to go from argumentation for the gospel to celebration of the gospel. Martin Luther calls these the happiest, calls these verses the happiest text in Romans. You're going to see the word rejoice used repeatedly throughout these verses. It's, it's, it's basically Romans 8, which is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It's that in miniature in just 11 verses. It's like your preview of what's coming. The main focus of these verses is how the gospel transforms how you see your life and particularly how you experience suffering. So let's dive in. Chapter 5, let's just go word by word. Therefore, Let's stop right there, okay? Because that's an important word. Um, therefore, there are four important therefores in the book of Romans. I've heard it said that you can basically explain the book of Romans by these four therefores. First of those therefores occurred at the end of chapter three, chapter three, verse 20, when Paul says, therefore, we conclude that by the works of the law, a person cannot be justified. Therefore, it's going to take something else to save us. And that's where he introduces justification by faith. There's another really important therefore in chapter eight, verse one, when Paul says, there is therefore no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And then he explains that because of that, we have access to all all the benefits of the Christian life that a son or daughter of God would have. There's another important one in Romans 12, verse one, where Paul says, I now urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, in light of what God has given to you in the gospel, you ought therefore to offer your life without restriction back to him. Those are three of those therefores. The, uh, the fourth one occurs in chapter five, when Paul says, therefore, because we've been declared righteous by faith, we are entering a new reality that should reshape how you see everything, right? And, 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 and if you understand this, therefore, you're never gonna be able to look at life the same. Therefore, because we've been declared righteous by faith, we now have peace with God. Now, peace with God here is not referring to a subjective feeling, a serene feeling of peace. That would be the peace of God. Peace with God is a reference to the new reality that Christ's death has created for you with God. Feelings are important. I want you to hear me say that. I don't want you to feel like this morning I'm gonna be hating on feelings. I am a little bit, but I want you to hear me say that I like feelings, okay? I'm like anybody else, I got feelings too. Feelings are important, but feelings come and go. It is the reality of your standing with God that is important. 
I point this out because it seems like most people in our culture think that the primary purpose of religion is to give you therapeutic feelings of peace. And because they think that, they'll say things like, well, I'm really glad that going to church and Christianity and singing songs gives you that feeling of peace, but I get those feelings from yoga or meditation or taking long walks or playing golf or eating kale or drinking bourbon or rubbing essential oils on my lymph nodes or whatever it is that you do. Right? And they think, so that's the way that I get peace and that's the functionality. You use Jesus and I'd use this, but more important than feelings of peace is whether you actually have peace with God, right? I mean, that makes sense. Just think about it in the physical realm. Which would you rather do? Would you rather go to the doctor with a, a, a bad headache, have him run some tests and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. This headache will soon you know, go away, everything's fine. Would you rather have that happen or go to the doctor feeling great, feeling more alive than ever? And him say, yeah, we just discovered a brain tumor and you're not gonna live for more than six months. Well, of course you'd rather do the former because the feeling is less important than the reality. You ought to base your feelings on what you know to be true about reality. And those are truths that are expressed to you in the word of God. I feel peace in my heart because I know I have peace with God, not vice versa. It is amazing to me how often people come up to me with those things reversed. They'll come up and say, pastor, I just don't, I don't feel close to God. I don't feel loved by God. I don't feel like he really cares about me. And they think because they don't feel these things that indicates something is wrong. And I always wanna to say to them, why are you looking at your feelings for assurance instead of the word of God? You don't base your, you don't base your, your perception of reality on your feelings. You take your feelings and, and base them on what you know is true about reality. Or the way we say it here is, you don't feel your way into your beliefs, you believe your way into your feelings. You let reality be determined by the word of God and let your feelings adjust to that. Your faith will plunge into shipwreck if you don't learn this. And this is where so many people are. The analogy I've used to help you see this um, comes from Watchman Nee, a Christian, lived 50, 60 years ago in, um, in China. He, uh, Watchman Nee, the Chinese Christian said, he said, it, it's sort of a difficult word picture to get, but just follow me. He said, he said, it's like three men that are walking along the top of a narrow wall. Imagine a little narrow wall about a foot wide and you got three men. The first he says is named fact. The second man is named faith. And the third man is named feeling. They're trying to keep their balance on the wall. He said, as long as faith, the second guy, keeps his eyes on fact and feeling keeps his eyes on faith, everybody's gonna be okay. But the moment, the moment that faith turns around to check on feeling, it is very likely that both he and feeling are gonna tumble off the wall, right? Just like I'm trying to do now, I just about fell over. All right, so, so, so the point is your faith has to be grounded in the fact of what God has done for you in the gospel and your feelings should follow behind your faith. Don't base your faith on your feelings, base your faith on the fact of what God has declared in his word and let your feelings conform to that. Do not believe, your, do not feel your way into your beliefs, believe your way into your feelings. You come up to me and you're like, pastor, I don't feel close to God. And I'm gonna say, I don't care what you feel. I'm gonna tell you what God's word says because you don't look within for assurance, you look to the word of God and you look at what his promises are, right? And what Paul is saying is you have peace with God and you need to remind yourself of that every single day. Uh, there's a, 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 a thing I've given you guys called the gospel prayer. It has four phrases. I'm only gonna give you the first one today. If you're interested in the others, just go to summitchurch.com and we'll have all those resources there. Um, but the first one is basically, I, I've given it to you to, I, I tell you, especially if you're a new believer, pray this every day because it will help you ground yourself in the gospel. 
And the first of those phrases is about your peace with God. It says this, in Christ, there's nothing I could do that would make you love me more. Nothing I have done that makes you love me less. I have peace with you. And because I know I have peace with you, that changes how I see things because I don't need to do anything to earn your favor or your love. Because we have peace with God, Paul continues, we have also obtained access through him by faith, look at this phrase, into this grace in which we stand. Now the word grace here, um, you need to interpret that as favor. Because in this context, Paul is not talking about grace so much as getting mercy for your sins, as much as he is talking about walking in a favored status with God. What he is saying is you, like a son or daughter of God, need to understand that you exist in the favor of God, all favor, all the time. Like any child would would feel about a father or mother that he knew, she knew, really loved him. J.I. Packer, the, the theologian, says that you can really understand, you can really tell how much somebody really understands the gospel just by finding out how much they think about, how much they cherish, how much it moves them, this idea of being God's child. He says this, um, if this is not the thought, God being your father, that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Your demonstration that you really understand the gospel is how much it just floods your heart with this assurance of knowing he's my daddy. And I know that I can go with him to him because I, I exist in his favored status. So just ask yourself, how is that how you feel when you approach God? Or do you approach God with some kind of like, well, I feel like just this general disapproval. I feel like I gotta make all these promises and, and earn his favor. I feel just sort of this general negativity. Or maybe like he doesn't really even care. Maybe like he's just too busy with other things. He's not really listening. Or do you come with that awareness that he is a tender father who literally could not love you any more than he does right at this moment? Some of you, your Christian life is stalled. You don't have, you're not growing in your affections for God. You're not growing in your sense of closeness to God. And the reason is because you don't have this sense of God being your father this way. I just think of it very uh, um, easy analogy. Um, I think of uh, like my kids with me, when my kids were, especially when they were young, when my kids felt like that I was annoyed with them, when I was in a bad mood, when I was mad at them, man, they just avoided me and would leave me in my office by myself and they'd hang out with their mom, right? Because they don't wanna be, if they feel like disapproval, but the moment like if I came home off of a trip and I was just so excited to see them, man, they would come to me and climb up my lap and they would cling to my leg and I couldn't get away from them, right? Because that, that feeling of tenderness for me makes them want to be around me. For many of you, you're not growing in your love for God because you have no real perception of the love of God. If you understood the tenderness of God's love for you, it would make love for God grow in you, right? That's what Paul is, yeah, you need to have, access into the grace, this favor in which you stand. Now, I know some of you are like, but wait a minute, JD, you just don't understand. Like my dad was not like this. And so I don't really have a way of interpreting this because I never want to be around my dad. Yeah, I get that. I, I understand. But it's like I've told you, you need to start evaluating your earthly father through the lens of your heavenly one, not your heavenly father through the lens of your earthly one. You have a father that was that father you always yearned for. He was a father, um, God's word tells you, that was so in touch with your needs that he knows when a single hair falls from your head. So in touch with your needs that before you even vocalize it, he already knows what it is. A God who says, Psalm 139, that he literally journals your days in a book. I know some people that are really fastidious about journaling every single day. I don't know anybody that journals about somebody else. Yeah, Psalm 139, go back and read it. It says, God journals about you in a book. I don't know what that metaphor means, but it means he's paying attention. Um, I, or this part, my favorite part of Psalm 139, even if you made your bed in hell, I'd come for you. 
I've told my, my, my oldest two daughters, um, uh, I'm like, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what kind of trouble you're in. It doesn't matter what kind of danger you're in, how far you are away, what time of night it is. Even if you made some dumb decisions to get yourself in this situation, you pick up that phone, you call me and I'll be there. And that's basically what God is saying in Psalm 139, right? Even if you made your bed in hell, I'm not gonna stand in heaven and lecture you. You call me and I will come. This was a father who, when you had turned your back on, on him and spurned him and despised him and ran the other way and said, I wish you were dead. All he did was stand at heaven's gate and look out after you, longingly waiting for you to return. And when you began to return, he picked up his robe and he ran and he embraced you, welcoming that prodigal back home. He is a God that the Bible says, Zephaniah 3.17, dances over you with singing, which is a pretty amazing image when you think about even in worship here, that there is somebody else that is singing and dancing in our worship services and it is God in heaven and he is dancing with delight over his love and his tenderness for you. That is what Paul is saying. You need to have access and walk in this state of favor and know that whatever is happening, that God could not love you any more than he does right at this moment. And then you begin to pray with that knowledge. And when you do, you rejoice. You rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, we saw in chapter 4 through the life of Abraham that hope, hope is the assurance that God is going to keep all of his promises. This is a hope Paul is going to explain in a moment. This is a hope that is rooted in the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus shows me that one day God is going to restore all the different, all the various things that are broken down here. At the end of the day, y'all, if nothing else goes right in my life, if nothing gets fixed, if everything goes wrong, I've still got that assurance that there's a resurrection coming. I love how D.A. Carson, the theologian, says it. I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> Amen? That's good news. Because eventually, at some point in your life, something's going to go wrong and it's not going to turn right. right. Something's going to go wrong. People die. Our bodies, I hate to be depressing this morning, but our bodies are just getting older. Right? I mean, I know you're like, I'm in high school and I'm college. I hate you. But I'm, I'm talking about the rest of us, Right? You know, and it's just, I had a friend taught me to get in, in the CrossFit Open this year. Um, you know, it's a competition that you compete with people worldwide. It was a huge mistake. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. Um, because I, so I finished 6,180. That was my number of, age, of guys ages 45 to 49 around the world, okay? You're like, well, how many people were in that bracket? I don't know, like 6,190 maybe? I don't know. But, but the depressing part for me is next year, I'm not going to be physically in a place where I'll probably do better right? The body is not going the right direction. When I was young, I used to measure my, you know, strength, how many pull-ups I could do and how fast I could run a mile and, um, uh, you know, how much I could bench press, uh, how much I weighed. Um, uh, uh, now, you know, if, when you get older, you start measuring things like I get out of the shower and stand in front of a full-length mirror and stamp my foot and start a stopwatch. And when the last part of me quits jiggling, I stop the stopwatch. That's the new way that you measure things. It's not getting better, Okay. Now, I'm obviously being silly, but the point is, the point is, at some point, God's not answering that prayer for your body to just keep getting better. At some point, things fall apart, right? And again, just to get out of the silly realm for a minute, for some of you, and this is serious, it's like the cancer's not going to go away. God can heal you. Yes, he can. And we're going to keep praying for that, but the cancer might not go away. The aging process might not reverse itself. And the marriage might never come back together. And and, and people that have departed may not come back and, and you may live with this affliction and you're just wondering, what am I supposed to do with that? The person who has sinned against you looks like they're never gonna be brought to justice. 
Paul says that doesn't mean though that you're without hope because you're not suffering from anything that a good resurrection is not gonna fix. And Paul said, because of that, that makes me rejoice. Now rejoicing of course is different than happiness, even though Christians often get these two confused. Many Christians think that they're supposed to be happy when what they're supposed to be doing is rejoicing. And those are different things. Happiness, I've explained to you, is contingent on what you want to happen happening. It's in the very word, happiness. Happiness is when what you want to happen happen. And when what you want to happen happens, you're happy. And when you don't want what you want to happen doesn't happen, then you're unhappy. Does that make sense? It's kind of hard to say, but you get the concept. Joy is altogether different. Joy is not based on your happenings. Joy is based somewhere else. Many Christians think the Christian life is supposed to be snuggles and giggles and happy, happy, happy all the time. And if you're not, then something's obviously wrong. This is reinforced to us. Yeah, when we're, I mean, it, it, there's a great hymn we used to sing when I was a kid. I love the hymn. I still love it. It's got this one weird line in it. Um, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith. I received my sight. And now, how's it go? I am happy all the day. And I remember when I was a kid being like, man, I don't think I'm a very good Christian because I'm not happy all the day, right? Because sometimes I have, my days are hard. Sometimes, and I thought, well, and then my, my first clue that something was off here is when I started to really read the Psalms and realized these are not all happy songs. These are not all, you know, you know, uh, you know let's just dance around. I, or Job, I, I read the book of Job and I'm like, Job is obviously a guy who doesn't just, you know, bounce through life with, you know, like a room without a roof and singing happy. He's not that, right? Uh, Jesus. I mean, Jesus was a guy who didn't seem to just bounce through life with a chipper attitude all the time. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. He was a man that was acquainted with grief and familiar with sorrow. Yet Jesus was still somebody who said, the joy of the Lord is my strength because Jesus understood that joy is not contingent on happiness. Joy is contingent. Joy is based on something you have with God that is better than happiness and it's better than whatever you're missing in life. Joy comes when you know that what God has promised you in his word is more secure than anything you can guarantee in your own, and his presence is even better than all the things that you would like for life to be. Paul says, verse three, not only that, but we even rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. You see that phrase and you're like, rejoice in my afflictions. What on earth would that mean? Is Paul some kind of masochist? where he rejoices in pain for pain's sake or you know, feels like it shows people how tough he is and how righteous he is. No, this is rejoicing in affliction because you know, you know that affliction, no matter how bitter, no matter how terrible, is producing something in you that is of greater value than even a pain-free life would be. Listen, Christians are not Stoics. A lot of people get this confused. They think that Christians are supposed to be Stoics. A Stoic is somebody who is unmoved by pain. I don't ever cry. I'm just detached. You can't hurt me. Y'all, that is Buddhism, not Christianity. Buddhism teaches you not to feel pain by detaching yourself from the world. And by the way, the other way of saying this is not really loving anything. Christianity pushes you the opposite direction. Christianity tells you to love more deeply. And because of that, Christians feel pain more deeply than probably anybody else should. I mean, think about Job, who Job, after he lost his health, his family, and his livelihood, what was his response? To put a smile on his face and say, well, I'm gonna feel positive and encouraging today and bless you, brother. No, he ripped his clothes off. He puts ashes on his head. He falls to the ground and screams in rage at God. My favorite verse in Job, Job 122. Yet in all these things, Job sinned not. Now, a bunch of us, if we saw Job doing that, we like, oh, somebody needs a faith recharge. Job, you better check your heart. You better let go and let God. 
Now, I don't know why you love the things of the world so much, Job, but it shouldn't affect you that much. But Job did not sin because our going through pain does not preclude deep, deep pain. Don't go through life like a Buddhist. Feel the pain. Sometimes even rage at God. Yes, do it with faith. But it is supposed to, it is not supposed to be where you're just detached from this. But even in those things, you can trust God because you know, even in that, God is up to something ultimately good. And some of that good that he is up to is in you. We know Paul says that affliction produces endurance. Endurance is the ability to keep going when you are experiencing, hear this, no other earthly benefit from your faith. That's what endurance is. Endurance is the ability to keep going even when nothing else in your life is going right. When, 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 when your finances aren't being multiplied and when the job's not coming through and the marriage isn't getting better and you're not feeling any better, but you say, God is worth it. That's what Paul is talking about. That is endurance. It is a test because God sometimes wants to know, why are you actually following me? You see, I've got a number of blessings in my life and I'm so thankful for them. My family, my wife, my job, you all, just my health and all those things. And God loves to give me those blessings. But sometimes there's a question, there's a question of like, hey, is this, why are you following me? And it is an affliction that reveals that and it produces in me endurance that says, God, you are enough. One of our campus pastors, um, Peter Park at the downtown Durham campus, uh, shared this with me um, earlier this week. I asked for his permission to share it. He said, he said, he said, yes. He said, back in 2010, when I first came on staff on the pastoral team at the Summit Church, he said, I prayed something that I now think was absolutely foolish. I prayed that God would teach me to walk closer to him by showing me what it meant to suffer well. In many ways, I wish I'd never prayed that prayer and I would never tell somebody else to do that because the next year was the hardest year of my life. One of my best friends died of leukemia. My wife and I lost our daughter that year. For months, we were in the hospital more often sleeping in the hospital than we did even in our own home. I hated that season. And it's taken me years even to talk about it. But God walked with me during that time. And I learned what Paul was saying here in Romans 5. And that is that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. It's probably the most beautiful, the most painful lesson I've ever learned in my life. There are some things that you learn in affliction that you really don't learn any other way. Or I think here of the words of Corey Timboom, the Nazi concentration camp survivor. I've quoted the last couple of weeks, in fact. I never really knew that God was all I needed until he was literally all I had. I never knew that God was all that I needed until he was all that I had. And that's what affliction showed to me. We'll give you one more here. Robert Smith, who's preached here a couple of times. It's been a couple of years since he's preached here. I love this. When faith is stripped of the bone, no marrow, no tendons, no muscles, no fat, no gristle, no earthly benefits at all. All our props and all our crutches are gone. Our faith in God that he is good and that he is still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. It is affliction that produces that conviction. It produces things in you that you can learn in no other way. Martin Luther, again, who, who studied this book, launched the Reformation. He said, there are three things that make for a great theologian. One is knowledge of the scripture. Two is a lot of prayer. And three is affliction. He said, you'll never really know God until you've been through that furnace of affliction. In fact, speaking of his own experience, he says this, one of my favorite quotes of his, I credit the devil, the Pope, and all my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of the word. Through the devil's raging, they've turned me into a pretty good preacher, driving me into the gospel to depths I never would have reached without their afflictions. Suffering in the believer's life is like the cold 
that triggers the furnace in your house to come on. You know how this works, right? You, you, you and your spouse, by the way, this is always one of the first marriage fights because you know, your spouse wants to turn it on 78 and I want it on 62. Uh, but whatever it is that you guys settle on, when it, the cold dips below the temperature, this furnace kicks on and all this wonderful warm air pours out of the vents. Now, the cold is not producing the warm air. The furnace is producing the warm air, but the cold is triggering the furnace to come on. And Paul is saying in a similar kind of way, that's how faith it works, is that when the cold of suffering, when the cold of persecution or affliction um, comes into your life, that furnace of your faith kicks on and, and pours new experiences of trust and confidence and yes, even joy in God that you may not have ever experienced apart from the cold. And the colder the temperature gets, the hotter the furnace gets. And the colder the suffering, a lot of times the hotter the furnace in your life will burn up and it will produce in you endurance. And endurance will then turn into proven character. Proven character means character that has gone through the furnace of affliction and had those impurities burned away. Peter is going to, the apostle Peter is going to take the same concept. He's going to, he's going to come at it from a slightly different angle. He's going to say, when you suffer, when you suffer, your faith, your faith, which is more precious than gold, is being refined like gold is refined so that it will result in praise, glory, and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. Peter's referring to a, a process back then by which they purified gold. They would heat it up to the point basically of boiling. And because gold, the kind of metal it is, it would not evaporate and go away, but every other impurity, all the other minerals, all the other defilements would, would, would burn out of it. And Peter's saying, that's what God is doing to your faith. In your faith are mixed all kinds of things. You've got things that you're depending on that, that you really should be depending on God. And so God sometimes allows this furnace of affliction to purify you so that you come through it and say, I love God and God is enough. And while I appreciate all these blessings and I hurt when they're not there, God, you are sufficient for me and suffering God might be and might be and again I, I don't know what's going on in your life but in suffering God might be trying to prune out some bad habit and that's what one of the psalms says in, in one place before I was afflicted I went astray and then after you afflicted me well that's when I learned to depend on you um, I remember learning um, in ancient Israel one of the, the the practices they had for sheep that would wander if a sheep just kept wandering and kept getting lost, the shepherd would break one of the legs, one of the front legs of the sheep, which of course is unbelievably painful for the sheep, but it wasn't an act of cruelty. After he'd break the leg, the, the sheep would then put this, the shepherd would put this sheep on his back and for the next two or three months while that leg healed, he would carry him from place to place. So if anything, the, the greater burden is on the shepherd is now he's having to carry this, this sheep. But what would happen, they say, in those two or three months is that sheep would develop a real affection for the shepherd. And that sheep would also learn that everything the sheep needed to be happy and to thrive in life was wherever the shepherd was. And so when the, it was healed and was put back down, it would never wander away again. Sometimes God does that in your life. Sometimes God breaks you because he wants you to learn to trust in him. And the affliction is not punishment. The affliction is simply saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention to tell you that I'm enough. And that's why I'm allowing this pain. So when you're flat on your back, you'll be looking the right direction. Maybe it's, it's that there's something in your life that you're growing, you're growing too dependent on and God is just trying to shake that. Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's not even that, that you're doing anything wrong. God just wants to teach you more about himself. I've used the image here of an ancient Japanese tribe who used to shatter a pot after they had made the pot, shatter it on the ground. You say, why would they do that? It was a process. I, I, I did some research this week, figured this out. It's a process called kintsugi, right? Kintsugi, I don't speak Japanese, but kintsugi means golden repair. That was what they were famous for. Because what they would do, here's one of the, the pots. After they shattered it, they'd pick up all these little pieces. 
and they take melted gold and they would put the pot back together so that now the pot is more valuable for having been broken and pieced together with gold than it was before it was ever broken to begin with. Now the flaws are a part of the unique character of the pot. And now the pot is able to tell a story and show that this gold makes it stronger than it was before it was broken. You see, what suffering does is it allows God, it allows God to infuse the gold of his presence into the broken places, the broken seams of your life. And that whole process is designed to teach you hope, 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 the assurance that God's gonna keep his promise, the assurance that when nothing else is working out right, that there is resurrection coming, the assurance that God has never left you or forsake you and that God has kept his promise to work all things together for good. And that hope, Paul says, that one hope will not disappoint you. By the way, the implication there in Paul saying that is he's a man that's familiar with a lot of other hopes disappointing you. Right? We, we, most of us, we're hopeful people, but how many hopes do we have that disappoint? You hope that this relationship is gonna satisfy and it doesn't. You hope this new job is gonna be everything that you want it to be and then it, it lets you down. You hope this friend will never betray you or, or let you down, but he or she does. Some of you are hopeful just because you're optimistic. Right? You just, that's your character quality. I'm, I'm a little bit like that. Just, optimism is the assumption that tomorrow will be better than today just because it's tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. It's just, I, I just know it's, how do you know that? Maybe tomorrow's gonna be worse. I'm not trying to rain in your parade, but how do you know? Right? Optimism is, 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 is a hope that will ultimately disappoint. Some of you are hopeful because you have this inspiring idea that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And yeah, I mean, I get inspired by that. I'm like, yeah, I can see how painful things made me stronger, but sometimes you go through things and it actually wounds you and you carry that wound with you for the rest of your life. I'm reading this book, or just actually just finished this book right now called Can't Hurt Me. Um, it's a, uh, written by a Navy SEAL, and it's the story of how all these painful experiences this guy went through in life made him into the man of character he is. Now, I wouldn't recommend the book to you because it's got a lot of profanity in it, but um, the, 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 it's inspiring. The, the, the story's inspiring about how all this stuff worked, but I remember reading this book and just thinking, yeah, I realize that some of this happens, but sometimes you encounter wounds you can't shake. And sometimes people do permanent damage to you. And hey, one day your body just eventually dies. You're not always going to overcome. You can't go through life with a can't hurt me attitude because yes, life can hurt you and you may never fully recover. That's a hope that disappoints. Some of you seek hope by medication through drugs and alcohol or sexual stimulation or materialism. And you know that always ends badly because when it is unhappiness that's driving you to drinking or, 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 or sex or, or materialism, those things turn into toxic, destructive poisons in your soul because your soul was not designed to feed on them. They are not valid places of hope. Paul says, I got a better hope than any of those things. I got a hope that will not disappoint because God's love has been poured out in my heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. And I want you to notice what he's doing because a lot of people are confused about the Holy Spirit. What's his purpose? His purpose is to pour out the love of God in your heart. When you have an, a, a moment with the Holy Spirit, you are becoming more aware of who you are in Christ and the greatness and finality of his love for you. That's what a fullness of the Spirit looks like. I, I've, the analogy I've used is, um, it's like a, a father walking along with his five-year-old son holding his hand, looks down at his son, gets swept up in just fatherly emotion, picks up his son, spins his son around, Who's my boy? I'm so proud of you. I love you. You know, the son's giggling and they're having this father-son moment. Here's the question. Is that kid any more his father's son legally than he was the moment before? 
No, his son's status has not changed at all, but his perception of that has changed. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, Paul says, and he creates this awareness that I am a child of God and I am in the favor of God. And a lot of times that's gonna happen in this overwhelming moment like in worship, and sometimes it's gonna happen, more often it's gonna happen through gentle reminders as God teaches you what his love in your life means. That's why Paul goes on from there, not to talk about an ecstatic experience, but he goes on from there to begin to explain the logic of the cross. He says, you see, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will somebody die for a just person, though for a good person, somebody might even dare to die. Here's the logic Paul is giving. He's like, it's possible, it's possible. And we know of stories where some heroic person offered his life for somebody that they loved. But God's love is different than that. God's love is not like those things. In fact, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, by the way, verse 10, Paul's gonna say enemies. When we were an enemy, that's when God died for us. And Paul says, nobody else has ever done that. Who does that? God laying down his life for me is not like me laying down my life for my children. God laying down his life for me was like me laying down my life to save a terrorist who had murdered my children. I mean, imagine some terrorist murdered my children and I show up in court the day that this guy is gonna be sentenced to prison for life. And I show up and I say, take me instead. Let this guy go back to his family. He can have all my, all my money, all my fortune, all my inheritance, he can take it all. He can go start life over and I'll go into prison and serve out his term for the rest of my life. You say, well, who would do that? That's Paul's point. Nobody would do that, but that's what God did for you. That's what God did when he took you from the status of enemy and through his death turned you into a son or daughter. How much more then, since we've now been declared righteous by his blood, how much more will we be saved for, through him from wrath? Meaning the, the, the ongoing wrath that's existing in the world. Of course, not. God is not wrathful toward us. He's already poured out his wrath in Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled, are we gonna be saved by his life? Saved by his life means this. If Jesus's blood secured my forgiveness, then his resurrection guarantees that what he has started, he will complete. His life proves that he hasn't left me. His life proves that he is standing by the throne of God right now, making sure that I will never be cast away, I'll never be forgotten, making sure that what he has started, he's gonna complete and that he will never leave me or forsake me. And one day he's gonna resurrect me so that I'm gonna be like him. And what that means is before the throne of God above, and now what we sing, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is written on his hand. My name is graven on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me this depart. What that means is I'm saved by his life. I'm saved by the fact that there he stands this morning. And while he is standing there, he is the proof that God is never gonna let me go. He's never gonna forget me. And he is gonna complete what he started. I don't know what God is doing in your suffering. I can't know, you can't know. But what I know, people sometimes say to me, well, pastor, what does this suffering mean? And I always say, I don't know. I don't know, but what I do know, I know what it can't mean. The cross shows me that it can't mean that God has forgotten you. Because when you were his enemy, that's when God came for you. It shows me that it can't be that God is not involved in your life because the resurrection proves that he is involved in your life. So whatever it means, it can't mean that you're forgotten or God's not involved. You may never figure out exactly what God is doing in a painful chapter. John Piper, the way he says it is, at any given moment, God is doing about 10,000 different things in your life. And you are aware usually at most with about three of them. 
The other 9,997 things are totally a mystery to you and you're not gonna figure it out. But what you can know in that moment is that the logic of the cross shows me if I was saved from wrath by his death, I'll be saved now through his life. And his resurrection proves that he hasn't stopped caring, that he hadn't forgotten and that he is not absent. He is involved. That means what I said at the beginning, your joy in suffering is the measure to which you really believe the gospel. It's the measure to which you really believe that you're at peace with God. I love the way Tim Keller says it. Your belief in the gospel is measured by your ability to have joy and suffering. Now I wanna tell you, this is not something that's gonna come naturally to you. If you're sitting there feeling like, well, this is like, I just, me too. That's why Paul talks about it as a learning process. In fact, glance real quick back at verse three. We rejoice because we know. Rejoice is a choice. It is a choice to remind yourself of what you know. The choice to rejoice, or let's just say the choice to worship is not a feeling that naturally rises up in you. Many times the choice to rejoice and the choice to worship is in defiance of your feelings. It's amazing to me um, how many times the Bible commands us to shout, to rejoice, and to worship. 40 different times in the Psalms, listen, 40 different times you are instructed to raise your hands in worship. That just that one motion, just raise your hands. 40, why would he tell us to raise? Well, I mean, like if you feel like it, you should raise your hands because God doesn't want you to be inauthentic. Here's why he commands you because he knows you're not always gonna feel like it. And worship is not supposed to be a reflection of your feelings. Worship is supposed to be a declaration of what you know to be true. So the time that I need to raise my hands is when I don't feel like raising my hands, right? Some of us come in here and we're like, well, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I think I should do it if it doesn't feel authentic. That's exactly when you need to do it. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm declaring what I know to be true, even though in my heart, I don't feel like it's true. I know it's true. And so I'm gonna declare it and I'm gonna let my feelings conform to what the realities of the gospel are. Worship is not a depiction of your feelings. Worship is a declaration of who God is, okay? So some of us, when we come in here and it's time to worship, we look in our heart and say, how do I feel? How do I feel? You shouldn't be looking in your heart. You should be looking in the word of God or you should be looking upwards and say, not how I feel, but what is true. And then I'm going to even have my posture reflect that because let me tell you a little secret. A lot of times your heart, often your heart will follow your posture, right? I mean, think about it. When I, um, uh, sometimes I'll get down on my knees when I pray and I don't get there because I suddenly feel submissive, but I find that almost always when I get down on my knees, I start to feel submissive because my posture is guiding my heart. And the same thing is true when I lift my hands. Oh my God, I mean, I feel like this, but you're worthy and you're powerful. And I'm open and I'm surrendered and suddenly my heart follows along with that. You don't feel your way into your worship, you worship your way into your feelings, see? And so when we worship, we put God's truth on display to ourselves and to others. You see, when you go through suffering, suffering has a way of defining you. It becomes your identity. I'm the, I'm the kid that, that everybody overlooks. I'm the divorcee. I'm the person who's ill and probably is not gonna get better. I'm the victim. Worship is in defiance of those feelings and say, yes, suffering is a part of my story, but suffering is not the whole story and it's not the end of the story. Who I am is determined by the word of God. What my future is, is determined by the promises of God. God's love for me is determined by the cross 
the hope that I feel in life is determined by the resurrection. So before the throne of God, I've got a strong and perfect plea. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So what better way for us to end what I think may be the greatest passage in the Bible on worship? Should we end that together by just standing to our feet at all of our campuses? Let's stand together and let's worship. Don't look within, don't look within. Look at the Bible, look upwards, and you declare what you know to be true in the gospel and let the Holy Spirit, through the love that he's pouring out in your heart, bring your heart into conformity to what you know to be true. As our worship teams come.